If you want to ruin a doctor's life, all you have to do is make a complaint to APRA. And isn't that the sad reality? I'm Susie New from the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and thank you for listening to the Australian Anaesthesia Podcast, where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. When I was president of the ASA, I had a few, thankfully not many, people reach out to me because they had dealings with APRA for various reasons. And I was absolutely gutted by what some of these doctors were going through. In my current role on the Federal Council of the Australian Medical Association, I've come to learn of the incredible work that the AMA does in working with APRA. So I couldn't think of anyone better to chat with me than Nick Elmert, who is a policy manager at the AMA. In this podcast, we talk regulation of the medical profession and how APRA, while they don't get everything right, particularly the well-being of doctors, are not always to blame. All right, let's get into it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for giving up some time this afternoon to join me and talk about APRA. Am I saying it right, first of all? APRA. A lot of people will say APRA, but we like to say APRA so as not to confuse it with the prudential regulator. That's what I say too. Good. All right. Let's stick with APRA. And actually, while we're talking about names and pronunciation, some people will talk about this because I'll put it in the podcast, but it's now capital A, lowercase HPRA. That's correct. It's been the case for a few years now. And I understand that some people don't like that. We have no comment on the the name change within the AMA, but we use the name as they like to use it. But if you capitalise each letter, we understand who you're talking about. It did used to be capitalised before, didn't it? Because it is it truly an acronym. Yes, it's really an acronym. I believe it was in 2021 when they when they made the change. All right, before we go into APRA, I wanted to find out a little bit more about you, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So my name's Nick Elmett. I'm the policy manager of the medical practice team here at the AMA. The way that we divide the labour and policy at the AMA is along key policy issue lines. So we have APRA, we have regulation and indemnity and all of those issues, which are quite technical, but are so crucial to, to every practitioner's lives. And We try to keep on top of those issues day to day as they emerge, but we also have private health, private health insurance, public hospitals, and digital health as some of the other key policy areas that we're looking at. But there's always a lot going on, such as the the review of the National Health Reform Agreement, which we have very actively been involved in to try and see if we can get a little bit more funding and a little bit of improved performance to our public hospitals leading up to the to the next agreement kicking off in 2025. And what did you do before the AMA? Before the AMA, I worked at the ANU as a researcher in general practice policy, coming from a Master of Culture, Health and Medicine, which is a very specific program offered at the ANU here in Canberra. So I've been involved in health research and health policy for about 10 years now, but I have no clinical background and I have not ever been a registrant of APRA So I cannot comment and I cannot provide specific examples of the impact on my life, but I hear the issues, I hear the concerns from our members weekly and to anybody who listens to this, I'm happy for you to contact me and share your experiences because that is what informs our policy making and informs our interactions with APRA. Great call to action there, Nick. And I've been really impressed with the breadth of the AMA policy team as well as the depth, some really experienced and educated, qualified people in the team as well. 
Yeah, we're a pretty good team. Very much so. Okay, so let's talk about, before we go into APRA, the regulation framework, which I think is going to be really hard to describe to people who are listening. Yeah. Because I'd imagine lots of post-it notes and circles and diagrams everywhere. It's much more complicated than many doctors would think it is. Yeah, it's, it's far more complicated and it varies from state to state. So the health practitioner national law is what guides APRA and the regulation of health practitioners. So there's 15 regulated health professionals who, who are under APRA, doctors being just one of them. And some examples of some of the others might be? So nurses, physios, psychologists, Chinese medicine practitioners, radiographers. It's a pretty broad body of health professionals. There are those that sit outside of it. APRA still has some enforcement powers for non-regulated health practitioners. So try to think of an example. Right now, sonographers are not registered under APRA. They mm-hmm. are seeking to be regulated under APRA. We're supportive of them to be regulated. I think anaesthetic assistants and technicians also comes under that category as well. That's right. So they are not registered under APRA and there has been a discussion about whether or not they could be regulated under APRA. There are always pros and cons to these. Mm-hmm. But I think what's important to know is that if you do see one of these non-regulated health practitioners acting dangerously, there are repercussions to malpractice, let's put it that way. They are subject to regulation of sorts. Okay. So APRA sort of oversees a big diaspora of professional groups. Yeah. And so each group has their own board. So just like doctors have the medical board, there is the pharmacy board, there is the medical radiation practitioner board, the professions who regulate their own profession, which is, I think, how we would expect it to be. And it's how we certainly want it to be for doctors. But it also varies state by state. So the way that it works now, the legislation is written collectively by the health ministers, by APRA, by the the relevant department, and then it is put through the Queensland Parliament as legislation. And some may suspect that it goes through Queensland because they only have one (laughs) chamber and it's not subject to as much scrutiny as other states. That's an opinion that exists. I smiled when you said Queensland. Yeah, and then it is immediately adopted as legislation in some states. In other states, it has to pass through their own parliament and legislature to be enacted. And that's why you end up with situations where it's slightly different in some states. So the key example is the mandatory reporting laws, Mm. which exist in every state and territory, except for Western Australia, which has a slightly different model, a model Mm. that the AMA is much more in favour of than what exists in the other states. And we're talking there about mandatory reporting of health professionals who have a mental illness or something like that. That's right. So that's when you observe a health professional who is experiencing mental distress or severe mental ill health and you have an obligation to mandatorily report them to APRA or to your uh, state-based health regulator. So Queensland has OHO and New South Wales has HCPA. So they they work in tandem with APRA in in those states. And I, I will point out they may fought very hard against those laws and we still actually advocate for them to be changed to adopt the the West Australian model. But Anne Tonkin, the chair of the medical board, has been quite clear that if you're suffering from some mental ill health, if you have depression or anxiety, you should feel comfortable to go and speak to your GP about it. It really is quite 
high level, the bar that they want to accept that as an actual notification to pursue action or or investigations. We've worked with APRA and the Medical Board to make sure that you should seek help if you need help. And the AMA also has Doctors for Doctors and and there are the Doctors Health Services in, in every state and territory. So reach out, make those phone calls if you need to make those phone calls because your wellbeing is very important to us and it's very important to the Medical Board as well. Exactly. Great, great key message there, Nick. I want to come back a little bit because often people get the medical board and APRA confused and we often say it all in the same sentence. So there'll be a notification to the medical board and APRA. What do you think are some of the key differences? That's actually a really good question. So I think when we talk about APRA, APRA is the overarching body of all of the medical boards And they will often have staff who are responsible for conducting the investigations and and conducting the initial assessment of the complaint that comes through. And we know that the vast majority of complaints that do come through about doctors are dismissed with no further action. I believe it's around 70% at the moment and only around 5 to 6% actually end up in any proper uh, actions being taken against a doctor, such as a registration, suspension or conditions being put on a doctor. And then the role of the medical board is a bit more specific in that the medical board sets out the the good practice guidelines. And so a a good example of what they've been doing recently is the updated telehealth guidelines, which have just been released and we're quite supportive of them. So the medical board does a lot of that. It really is quite a complicated picture. And I know that presentations with a PowerPoint often help at this point in time. But the medical board is made up mostly of medical practitioners. There are a few consumers on there, but it is really about determining what is good conduct for doctors, setting out those guidelines and making sure that when complaints are made against doctors, they are viewed through a medical lens. So in terms of the last point, in terms of who is actually investigating complaints, that would mainly sit with the medical board? No, I'm sorry, I was perhaps a bit unclear on that. That would be led by APRA. Mm -hmm. And I want to get this term right. They do have a clinical input team. So medical practitioners screen every notification to identify and stratify risk. But that is still through APRA. Okay. And the medical boards give input to APRA through those medical input teams. Yeah. So the medical board has a national assessment committee, which meets six times a year, I believe, to provide overview and and review the types of notifications that are coming through to to give advice back to the way APRA is working. I, I believe that's how it works. That's why it's so confusing, isn't it? Yeah. That we're not exactly sure of the pathways of complaints. And from what I understand of previous information is that it's different, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales, because they have their own organisations or structures that deal with complaints as well in conjunction with APRA. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So Queensland has the OHO, which is the, the Office of the Health Ombudsman. And New South Wales has HCPA. Yeah, I've got HCPA and HCCC. And HCCC, that's right. And this is part of what contributes to the confusion, I would dare say. And one of the biggest complaints or one of the biggest concerns I have from anaesthetists and doctors is the delays in getting their notifications seen to because this is a really distressing time. I agree. And do you think part of the things that contribute to delays is that there are so many organisations having input into how a complaint is handled? 
So this is probably one of the main issues that we continue to raise with APRA. The AMA engages with APRA fairly regularly. We have an annual notification workshop where the president and the vice president, as well as representatives from key craft groups and areas within the AMA, for example, the chair of our doctors in training is always there, meet with APRA and the medical board and some senior leadership from within APRA to talk through the issues on behalf of the profession. They're actually quite positive, constructive meetings. And and over the years, we've seen a number of changes to policies and a number of implementations to to improve the notification process. But one of the key issues that we repeat time and time again is that there are too many notifications that are open for too long and too many notifications that take too long to resolve. And one of the key asks that the AMA continues to have is that APRA should have a target to resolve all notifications within six months pending exceptional circumstances. And we're quite far away from that at the moment. We we are seeing improvements, but seeing improvements in a trend line is pretty cold comfort if you've been sitting around with a notification hanging over your head for 15 months with Mm. no clear pathway for resolution. Well put, exactly. I wanted to come back to what you also talked about with mandatory reporting. Because I do think that's a really important message to get out there. So what are the obligations in terms of mandatory reporting if you're not in Western Australia at the moment? All right. So this is what it, it says. So mandatory reporting, when to report. You need to report a health professional if you reasonably believe that they are putting patients at substantial risk of harm by practicing with an impairment that is not being managed by effective controls, practicing while intoxicated by alcohol or drugs, practicing in a way that significantly departs from accepted professional standards and engaging in, having previously engaged in, or being at risk of engaging in sexual misconduct in connection with their practice of medicine. So the issue would be around impairment and what is the line of, say, a mental illness that impairs you from being able to practice safely. Mm. And When you read the examples that they provide of health practitioners who have been subject to a mandatory notification for mental illness and actions have been taken, the bar is very high. We don't get to read all of the cases. We see very de-identified examples provided to us and we only see select few. We don't see all of them. So I can't comment. And I'm sure that there are examples that would counter the narrative that I'm portraying right now. But these are people who you would expect that the mandatory notification actually was a good thing because Mm. it prompted an intervention that they may have needed to help get Mm. them back on the right track. And we would be supportive of that. It perhaps gets down to other parts of our advocacy where we would expect that at the end of this period, where a doctor or any other health professional has received the help that they need to get back on track and to be able to start providing safe care again, this shouldn't hang over them for the rest of their lives. This shouldn't be something that is publicly available for everybody Mm. to see when they look up a practitioner because everybody has hard times in their lives. Everybody experiences difficulty. You don't know what was the source of these issues. If you've had a problem, that problem is solved that doesn't and it shouldn't hang over you for the rest of your career. So this is why the AMA continues to advocate against all previous notifications being made publicly available because Mm. 
for the vast majority of people who have a notification made against them, there is an issue. That issue is resolved. We don't need it around anymore. Now, there is a discussion that can be had about sexual boundary notifications and quite severe ones. That's another discussion entirely. But the point is notifications exist on a, a very wide scale with very minor through to very extreme. We really are concerned that the way that the national law is implemented means that all health professionals who who exist on that scale end up getting treated like those right at the very top who probably do need quite severe repercussions to their behaviour. And we don't want to see that. And we will keep advocating so that if you've done the crime and done the time and there's no more serious threat to the public, that shouldn't be made publicly available. Or even if you're one of the doctors who has a you know a diagnosis like depression or anxiety, because doctors get it at the same rate that the general population does. That's right. And you're being well looked after by a GP. You might be on medication. Then that is certainly not the grounds for a mandatory report. No, no. And if you have depression and and you are experiencing an acute episode ill health, please seek help. Please call the numbers that you need to call. Speak to your GP. You're not going to get in trouble for that. That's the message that we got from the medical board. Excellent. I want to move onwards to the national law because my understanding of that is that often then limits in some ways what APRA can do. Yeah, so I might just do a little sidetrack for this because I think what the issue here is is that a lot of the frustration that is felt towards APRA by the profession, by a lot of health professions, is while it's legitimate, it's actually misdirected at APRA and it probably needs to be directed towards the health ministers who dictate the national law, which then dictates the way that APRA works in regulating health professionals. So can you give an example? Yeah, I think the key recent example, which a lot of people have been rightly disappointed by is the amendments to the national law, which saw what's often termed as name and shame laws, which Mm. mean that APRA now have the ability to publicly name somebody under investigation prior to the completion of that investigation. Mm. During the amendment process, which was quite a long process, it occurred during COVID as well. So it was a, a pretty difficult consultation. And we certainly felt that we did not have the appropriate level of engagement from the health ministers, from APRA, from the Department of Health, who were managing the drafting of the legislation. And and I think we've made that clear and will continue to make that case. But we were never really provided with examples of how this power could have been used in the past to protect the public in the way that the legislation was stating that it was supposed to work. And without demonstrating the potential benefit of this new power with the grave consequences to a doctor, to a physio, to a dentist who has this power used against them when in actual fact it turns out they've done nothing wrong at all is severe. The the misbalance in, in how this law is written and how it could impact a person, the risks were just too high for us. And we fought pretty hard on this issue. I think it's one of the most active advocacy campaigns that we've had in a long time in trying to get attention on this issue and trying to get through to the Queensland parliamentarians that this is a bad piece of legislation mm. 
it was a real team effort. We worked very hard with AMA Queensland on this one because, as, as we noted, it goes through Queensland Parliament. And at the time, our president, Omar Korshid, and current president of AMA Queensland, Maria Bolton, both appeared before the parliamentary inquiry on this. And I think both spoke very well and, and laid out pretty clear arguments for why it was a bad idea. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it was passed into law. So what our job then becomes is working with APRA, who are responsible for the administration of law, to make sure that these laws are used only in the most extreme circumstances. And we have had good conversations with APRA about it. They understand our concerns. They understand our position. And I don't think that it's likely to be a power that we will see being used anytime soon because the guidelines do set the bar at a very high level. And it is largely aimed at non-regulated health professionals or for health professionals who are registered but have had their registration cancelled working in other areas. The example that they use is there's a physio who's had their registration suspended or cancelled due to malpractice of some sort Mm. and they then set themselves up working as a physio without having to provide that level of information about they had their registration cancelled as a physio. So that's an example where they would use that power to say, be aware if you're seeing this masseuse, they actually had their registration cancelled. Oh, I see. So they were a physio and then they're setting themselves up as a masseuse. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Gotcha, so, gotcha. The, so the patient yep. would be at risk yes. for not knowing that information. Yeah. But what we don't want to see, and I think the fear that people have is that a vexatious complaint, a severe or serious vexatious complaint is made against a doctor. And Mm. as a result, with this power, prior to the completion or perhaps even the the commencement of an investigation, a public statement is made and it turns out that that complaint was vexatious. It's based on nothing at all. It's very hard to undo that public statement no Mm. matter what occurs afterwards. So what we have called for is we've called for any use of this power, the decision to be made by the CEO of APRA or the chair of the relevant board. It cannot be made by anybody lower. And Mm -hmm. we've also called for every time this power is used for APRA to go to the National Health Practitioner Ombudsman within one week and explain the use of that power. And we think Mm -hmm. that those are two fairly reasonable additional requirements. Yes, some safeguards there. Yeah, That's exactly right. And they haven't adopted those positions. We'll continue to advocate for that. We're yet to see the power used. And hopefully we won't see that power used anytime soon. But it seems like we're definitely watching with eagle eyes. Yeah, that's right. So this is an example of a bad piece of legislation that was written by the health ministers and enacted by APRA. And rightly, I think not just doctors, but all, all registrants of APRA, very frustrated and very scared by this. And that anger is directed at APRA, which is not fair. And I'm not saying don't get mad at APRA. There's a lot of reasons to be mad and frustrated and annoyed with APRA. But let's focus on what those frustrations are. And I think you're right, Susie. The time that it's taken to resolve a notification is a key one. Mm. And I will say that we have had a number of improvements over the years, though. And, And I will talk about vexatious notifications just quickly. I was just going to ask you about vexation. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I've seen, particularly over the pandemic, the use of APRA weaponized in a way between health professionals. So, yeah, let me know. What are your thoughts on vexatious complaints? So there have been a number of inquiries into APRA. There have been four Senate inquiries. 
And at the most recent one, which was in 2021, Dr. Antonio DiDio, who's a GP here in Canberra, got up and said, if you want to ruin a doctor's life, all you have to do is make a complaint to APRA. A hundred percent. And it's a real weapon that can be used, and we have seen it used repeatedly, especially through the pandemic, you're right. And, and we've seen it used against a lot of prominent public doctors. And one of our state presidents during the pandemic went on the news to say, wear a mask, get the vaccine. And he had a complaint made against him by a member of the public, a member of the public who disagreed with wearing masks, who disagreed with vaccines. There are a growing number of those members of the public out there, and they are increasing in the types of outrageous actions they're willing to take. So vexatious notifications exist. APRA introduced a vexatious notification framework with the intention of screening out vexatious notifications before the recipient of the complaint ever hears about it. So that's positive. It hasn't been in place for long enough for us to be able to determine whether or not it's had a genuine improvement on the numbers of vexatious notifications that are getting through. But it's an interesting one because they draw a distinction between vexatious and frivolous. So Vexatious are when they're totally false or fabricated to damage the career of the receiver of the complaint. A frivolous notification, and and Anne Tonkin has used a, a very specific example to help draw this line, a frivolous notification is a complaint which sits well beyond what you should be complaining about a health practitioner for and is just something that you're frustrated with. So she uses the example of a doctor turning up a little bit late to the appointment with a fresh cup of tea. And so it's a legitimate frustration for a patient. We've all been patients. We've all sat in the waiting room for longer than we would want to. But then, as you know, on the other side, often you need to spend more time with that patient leading into it. So you've got to put yourself in the shoes of that person who might have been having a bad day and seeing that doctor come in late with a cup of tea, tick them off so they made the complaint. Now, ARPA is not going to pursue that but it's not vexatious. So it can't be wiped out in that vexatious notification framework. So I think the next part of what we want to do in terms of working with APRA to improve the process is what do we do about these types of frivolous notifications? I'll say, I was going to ask, are are there any penalties for those who make those vexatious or frivolous complaints? Well, that's a really good question and another big issue, which is there are no repercussions for making a vexatious or frivolous notification. And I, I don't know that we would necessarily want the person who made the complaint about the cup of tea having anything other than a, come on, it's not that big of a deal at the end of the day. We're sorry about your experience, but Do you really want to put a a permanent mark against this doctor? We all deserve cups of tea on on hard days. But when it comes to vexatious complaints, which are often made with the intent purely just to damage the career of someone you don't like because of something they said in the media, and we actually see some of them come from professional colleagues who want to tear down another colleague, and we've had reports that actually state health departments are sometimes using these uh, as weapons against employees. So there should be ramifications for those. We have seen in some cases where doctors have made complaints against other doctors that they have received a reprimand, but it's not a particularly severe repercussion. Mm. I don't know how through the national law you would build that in because I think getting back around to the national law and the health ministers, beyond the writing of the laws, the other frustration that we have is that there is an imbalance in that 
The national law and APRA are set up to protect the public, but there is no commitment to protect the registrants. There is no commitment to the well-being of the registrants. Mm. So, of course, APRA should exist to protect the public. That is what they're there to do. But while they are investigating, they should have requirements to the health and well-being and the livelihoods of those that they are investigating, particularly when they do take as long as some of these horror stories that we hear about. They take so long and sometimes you are unable to work during that time. What does that mean for your life? What does that mean for your family, for your businesses, for your colleagues? Mm. The flow-on effects are significant, but health ministers who are increasingly becoming very opaque in their dealings. Steve Robson, the, the current president of the AMA, has written to the health ministers twice in the last six months expressing these concerns, the most recent one in light of that horrible report that APRA actually released that found that 16 doctors had committed suicide whilst under the notification process, Hmm. to say you need to actually take the well-being of the registrants seriously and it needs to be a priority for APRA. And until we see the health ministers actually make that as a policy direction, which they can do. They can give that as a policy direction to APRA. APRA will continue to pursue notifications, to pursue complaints in the way that they currently do. We can work with them to try and introduce better frameworks. We can work with them to try and speed up the process. And I think what actually frustrates us is they don't release enough data Mm. about what it is that they do. The annual report is very scarce in what is reported. We did receive a report at the AMA Federal Council in March this year where they demonstrated that they had been some significant improvements to the time and the processing of a number of types of complaints and notifications. But the data was presented to Federal Council and where else is it publicly available? People would like to know that there are improvements I'm going to ask a, this is a slightly mm. controversial question, but Anne Tonkin presented at NatCon, so the National Con- Convention yeah. of the AMA last year, and in the Q&A time, and I tried to go back and look at it at the recording, but unfortunately it wasn't recorded or it wasn't shared, but she did talk about the well-being of doctors and she made what I thought was a rather flippant comment. She said, these doctors who are getting all stressed out about a clearly frivolous complaint should really go and learn how to manage their stress a bit better. Yeah, yeah. That was along the lines of her comment, which I remember when I was once asked by a director of one of my departments to look at a patient because they complained about my anaesthetic. And when I looked at the anaesthetic chart, it wasn't my name on the chart. I wasn't there actually on that day in that hospital. But the director asked me to handle the complaint anyway, even though it wasn't about me. And I still found that very stressful handling someone else's complaint. It's an entirely stressful process. And I was very concerned about that comment at NatCon last year. I think it's a good point. And it is important in that it, it demonstrates the view by at the chair of the medical board of this issue. Do they take seriously enough the distress that even the lightest of notifications can cause? Because I think every doctor, everybody who's worked in healthcare has heard one of those horror stories. And that's Mm. what is always at the back of your mind. Exactly. So until they can stamp out these horror stories, until they can clear that backlog, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to, to feel distressed when this occurs. And we will keep trying to make that point and make it understood. But there's only so much we can do. And I think I would just touch on another thing that did occur at National Conference in 2022 because it's relevant, which was the call for a royal commission into APRA. And the the reason I bring it up is because 
whilst it wasn't ultimately supported for the AMA to call for a Royal Commission into APRA, I think everybody in the room and everybody who's spoken about this since absolutely understands the position of the doctors who wanted the Royal Commission into APRA. Everybody empathises with those experiences. Everybody wants to see the issues that led to that call stamped out so that they don't occur again. The reason why, and I, and I don't have a position on whether there's a Royal Commission or not, but the reason why in the room that day it was voted down was because there were two main reasons. One, you don't know where a Royal Commission is going to go. We wouldn't have any any control over the terms of reference and it's highly likely that in fact it wouldn't look too much at ARPA but it may dig deeply into some of those more extreme cases of bad clinical practice of sexual boundary violations that we occasionally see on shows like 60 Minutes and Four Corners rather than focusing on the mismanagement of complaints and notifications by ARPA. But the second issue is and and, and the key one I think is that it wouldn't look at the health ministers and it wouldn't look at the writing and controlling of the national law. They would sit outside of that. Mm. And so when we talk about trying to drive improvements with APRA, we think about it in two ways. We work with APRA and we work with the medical board to try and improve the notification process for doctors and for all registrants, but to speed up the time, to carve out those vexatious notifications, to limit what happens with those frivolous notifications, to make sure that, that there is support available to the extent that APRA can provide it to people who have received a complaint and are experiencing this notification process. But then on the other side, we want to improve the national law. And to do that, you actually have to go through the health ministers. And, and while we have very good engagement, we meet regularly with APRA. Steve Robson, the president, has very regular chats with the CEO of APRA and, and Anton, the, the, the chair of the medical board, both formally and informally. We at the secretariat level at the AMA meet regularly with APRA and the medical board to talk about these issues, to raise concerns. But when it comes to the health ministers, we have a much harder time getting through. And there are eight health ministers plus the federal health minister who we do engage with, we have a very good relationship with, but state and territory health ministers change fairly frequently. Mm. It's hard to know how much they understand their responsibility to the national law. We don't know what goes on at those meetings after we send those letters do they consider the asks that the AMA puts to them, which I think are fairly reasonable asks to make sure that APRA actually has the well-being of the registrants as a core component of their daily tasks? We don't know. Hmm. I'm not making a pitch for anybody to be less annoyed at the whole process, but I am making a pitch that next time think about what's driving it and maybe you should write a letter to your health minister expressing your frustration with the way that APRA has worked, the way that APRA has managed your case or the case of your colleague or friend and say, hey, we need to amend the national law. We need to fix this. We need to actually make sure that whilst protecting the public, it also protects the doctors, the nurses, the physios, the dentists who keep Australia in good health because if we continue to charge them more money every year, for a service that takes longer and longer to manage notifications, which are becoming more and more vexatious and frivolous, we're going to keep contributing to this serious issue of workforce burnout and shortage. So that's what we are trying to do internally at the AMA. And I think having as many doctors out there, as many as anaesthetists out there who want to take up this issue, 
write to your state health minister and explain that this is an issue for you, this is an issue for the profession and that there are solutions out there. That's been a really good distinction, I think, between the role of the ministers and the national law and APRA. Thank you, Nick. I wanted to finish up on just some practical advice for anyone who might be listening who does receive a letter from APRA telling them that they are subject to a notification. What are some of the steps that you would suggest that they take at that point? So first thing first, contact your MDO. So they're going to be able to give you much more practical advice than than we are able to at the AMA in responding to that letter. And I would also say don't panic. There are processes in place to make sure that if you've done nothing wrong, you should have no serious repercussions against you. Now, at the AMA, there's not a lot we can do in terms of advocacy for or against you in in the case, but we can provide support. If you need support, reach out to us and we're happy to provide any support that we can. And we do provide support. Sometimes it's just putting you in touch with a colleague who you can talk to about these issues, which is sometimes all that you need. We can, in certain instances, seek to speak to APRA about the case to try and speed it up, to try and find out what's going on, to note that we have significant concerns with the case. How much they take that on board varies, but at the end of the day, the MDO is going to provide you with more more practical on-the-ground support, and after all, that's what you pay them for. But I would also say we need to hear these stories because unless we hear what's happening, and, and if you have had a frivolous or vexatious notification, we would like to hear because we really can only go on what APRA tell us when they say that they've made improvements. If you have had an experience and you have not seen an improvement, we need to know so we can raise this with them and say, well, actually, you've told us this, but we know from this case that this hasn't happened. So so please do share with us. Great. That's the power of advocacy. Do they need to be an AMA member in order to contact you and share their experiences with you? You don't need to be an AMA member. But you should be anyway. <laughs> but it does help. And if you want to call me and speak to me, which I do enjoy speaking to members, even though they are sometimes long and, and difficult conversations, you do have to be a member. There you go. So to get personal chat with Nick, like I'm getting now, <laughs> and it pays to be an AMA member. Is there anything else that you would like to say? I would just reiterate that this is this is a top priority for the AMA because we know how important it is. We want to have a registration system that is effective, that does protect the public. And at the same time, we want to have a registration system that's fair and it's not too expensive. Because remember, at the end of the day, these are your funds that are paying for all of this. And we do continue to remind the health ministers of this. And we know that APRA is getting an increasingly wide remit of responsibilities. So we're taking this seriously and we believe there are positive outcomes to be reached, but we'll keep pushing for additional funding to make sure that it's fair. Great. Lovely. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much for your time today. That's been a really great conversation. I'm sure people will have found it really educational, especially how that regulatory framework all comes together. And thanks also for your offer to have people contact you. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, thanks, Susie. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning more about the regulation of doctors in Australia and have some sympathy for APRA. I also hope that you appreciate the work of the AMA in keeping agencies like APRA accountable. Because someone needs to be. We at the Australian Society of Anaesthetists have a great working relationship with the AMA. 
The AMA Federal Council includes an anaesthesia representative, which at the moment happens to be me, and the AMA Federal Councillor also has a seat on the ASA Council. So basically there's cross-pollination and it means there's an opportunity for ideas to be shared at a high level in both organisations, as well as the usual links such as president to president, CEO to CEO, policy team to policy team, etc. If you ever do find that you have come to the attention of APRA, and I sincerely hope that you don't, then please know that there is always someone that you can talk with. As I mentioned at the start, it's not that uncommon for the ASA president to be involved, perhaps only to listen to your story or introduce you to someone who's been through a similar experience. I also recommend you take up Nick's suggestion to contact the AMA, particularly if things are taking a long time. Of course, I really, really hope that you never come under the attention of APRA. I hope that there is a reduction in the number of vexatious complaints out there so that we as doctors can get on with the important job of looking after our patients without these things hanging over our heads. What do you think? Was it useful getting an update from the AMA? If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to know more about some of the things that the ASA and the AMA are working on, then please do email me and let me know what topics you're interested in finding out more about. The best email is podcast at asa.org.au. All right, until next time, as always, I hope you're staying safe and well out there. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie Newt with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934 and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.